This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. Hi, this is 15-Minute History, a podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Henry Winsek, graduate student of history here at UT and assistant editor at Not Even Past. And today I'm speaking with George Forge, a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, who specializes in U.S. political and cultural history from the American Revolution to Reconstruction. And today he's going to talk about some of the differing interpretations over what caused the Civil War. And given the depth of this topic, we've actually split the podcast into two parts. So be sure to check out both part one and part two on our site. Welcome, Professor Forge. Hello. So it's been over 150 years since the beginning of the Civil War. Yet there still seems to be a persistent debate over the precise causes of Southern secession and the military conflict that followed. Can you talk about some of the explanations that both scholars and non-scholars have given for what caused this turn of events? Uh, Yes. And the first thing I would say is that you aptly separated disunion from the war that followed. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, people tend to say what were the causes of the American Civil War and what they're really talking about the causes of disunion, why the South seceded, why the North reacted the way that it did, and why we go from secession into civil war is a related question, but still a a distinct question. But back to your question, I would guess that there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of different articles or books or talks that attempt to explain secession of the southern states, and it would be impossible for us to track them all I tend in my own mind to divide them up into five broad categories. Mm -hmm. And the first would be slavery. The problem of slavery led to disunion. A second one would be economic differences between the sections led the South to secede. A third one would be constitutional differences between the sections on the meaning of the Constitution and the uh, structure of the government under the Constitution Uh, provoked secession. A fourth one would go beyond those to say that the problem with the first three is that they are monocausal. They they take a very complicated event and try to uh, attach it to one single factor. And they will go on to say it wasn't just one thing. It was several things. And in fact, the North and the South had grown into two distinct societies over the decades since the beginning of the government. And it's only natural, like children growing up in a family, that ultimately they would go their separate ways. And that's what you need to look at when you're trying to explain secession. And then a final explanation, a fifth one, is sometimes called by historians the blundering generation Hmm. interpretation of secession. And that goes something like this. The fallacy of the first four slavery, economic differences, constitutional differences, broad differences in two societies, is that they take for granted that because the result, the war, is such a cataclysmic event, taking hundreds of thousands of lives, that there's nothing else like this in American history, arguably the biggest event, secession and civil war in our history, that it must have a cause that's equally large. And if you think for a moment about a terrible, terrible traffic accident that is caused by a moment's distraction on the road, you can understand that not all dramatic or serious or 
deadly events have serious causes that are equal to the result. So that would be the fifth one, that, that what happens is that politicians just blunder their way mm. toward the edge of the cliff, having, of course, no idea what's going to happen after they make certain decisions and take certain steps. But one thing followed another, and we find ourselves with states leaving the union. Mm. I think that a lot of people are familiar with the explanation that slavery caused the Civil War. Perhaps people aren't as familiar with the explanation that it was either in economic causes or constitutional causes. Could you briefly describe some of those explanations for the Civil War, how economics and constitutional politics may have played a role? Uh, yes, and I, um, while I'm doing it, I could also indicate to you why some people have a problem with those Absolutely. explanations. The argument about economics goes something like this, and I'm, I'm painting with a, a rather broad brush. Although the United States started out as a commercial-agricultural political community, gradually the sections went in different economic directions large-scale plantation agriculture producing staple crops for the world market established itself in the southern states, whereas in the north, for reasons having to do with the climate, the growing season, rainfall, and so forth, that area of the country was not suitable for large-scale agriculture, and people turned to other things, commerce, law, banking, and then manufacturers. And so by 1860, we have the vast majority of the manufacturers in the United States were in, in the northern states, and the South remained largely agricultural. And these two separate economic systems tended, according to this explanation, to compete with one another, and specifically to compete for control of the government so that the government would look favorably upon and assist this particular element of the economy. And the specific point on which this interpretation seems to turn is the dispute over the tariff, the protective tariff. Northerners, so the argument goes, manufacturers, wanted to put up a tariff, a barrier, to cheap foreign imported manufactured goods in order to provide kind of an incubator, at least for a time, for domestic manufacturers to be able to get started, to get off the ground, and to compete with foreign imports. And that meant that the price of these goods goes artificially up. And Southerners, especially wealthy Southerners, imported luxury goods and other goods that they wanted or needed from Europe, and were used to paying a lower price, and now they find themselves victimized by a policy that favors northern manufacturers in what John C. Calhoun, a South Carolina politician of the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, called class legislation. And the government should not be favoring one class, the manufacturing class, over the agricultural class. And what happens, of course, is that the Republican Party, which then as now, is stereotyped as the party of big business, comes to power and promises that this tariff will go up to the disadvantage of southern states. Mm. Now, here's the problem with this explanation. Nobody talked about the tariff problem. The, the tariff was a big issue in American politics in the 1820s and early 1830s, and South Carolinians tried to 
nullify the federal tariff. They ran into a conflict with Andrew Jackson over that, and finally they backed down. They even talked of secession then over the tariff. But that crisis was resolved in 1833, and one of the ways it was resolved was to put tariff rates, tariff duties, on a descending scale over the next nine years, down to the point that they were tolerable to Southerners and agricultural interests. And from that time on, for almost all of the time leading up to the Civil War, the tariff was where Southerners wanted it to be. And there wasn't much dispute about it. Now, okay, the Republicans are coming to power with Lincoln's election, and they might, they might want to raise the tariff, but they don't control the Congress. They don't control the courts. It seems very odd that on this remote prospect that really hadn't engaged the attention of the public for 30 years, that southern states would secede. Hmm. And then when you look at what the reasons that Southerners gave for seceding, one thing I I wish everybody could read is the 1,600-word statement that the leaders of secession of Texas gave when they gave their reasons for seceding in February of 1861. They issued a document explaining the reasons for secession. And in 1,600 words, there is at most one line or two lines referring to the tariff. All the rest of it is about slavery. Mm -hmm. So the problem with the economic interpretation, first of all, is it's not obvious that two different economies should be at one another's throats. Two different modes of production should be um, in conflict. Why can't they be cooperating with one another and complementing with one another? After all, the manufacturing section needs the raw materials produced by the agricultural section, and the agricultural section can use the finished goods produced by the manufacturing section. So they ought to be able to have a reciprocally beneficial relationship. So that needs to be explained. And the other thing, as I mentioned, is that you assume that when people break up in a relationship... Think of a personal relationship, a, a romantic relationship that that uh, breaks down and, and one of the people in the couple uh, wants out. Almost always they talk about it. They talk about what's bothering them <laughs> before mm-hmm. they go. And so it, it just is very hard to understand why people would be silent on something that was so important that would lead them to break up the union. So that's the problem uh, with that one. And moving on to the constitutional argument. This one, I have to say, I find the flimsiest of all, and for this reason. You can uh, go down to the grounds of the Capitol of Texas, the south entrance to the grounds of the Capitol, and there's a statue, a memorial statue to the Confederates who died in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it said they died for states' rights, and that the South left the Union in order to preserve its rights. Mm -hmm. They never say what those rights are that were in jeopardy, that were threatened. And there's this argument somehow that the southern states were being victimized by a violation or an adulteration of the Constitution by the northern states. But when you ask them, when you ask someone uh, about states' rights, the conversation tends to drift off. And here's my problem with that. If you were to run into a friend of yours on campus whom you hadn't seen for several weeks, uh, your friend um, Suzanne, and you say to Suzanne, Suzanne, how have you been? And Suzanne says to you, oh, uh, not much. I got a divorce since I last saw you. And you say to her, 
well, why did you get a divorce? And she said, oh, I had a right to. Now, I don't know about you, but I would find <laughs> that I, I really haven't learned anything here. Uh, states' rights doesn't explain secession any better than the right to get a divorce explains why somebody gets a divorce. There's got to be something lying behind it. And what is lying behind it? What are the rights that were threatened? The one that comes to mind, I don't understand how it might be refuted, is the right to own slaves, which Abraham Lincoln made clear he would like to see come to an end. And that's a, on that last point about slavery, it, paradoxically, it seems like slavery is at once the most common explanation for the Civil War and also the most controversial. Um, can you describe the explanation and maybe what's at stake? Why is it controversial? One of the reasons that slavery is one of these interpretations, and, and I would say over time, probably most of the time, the dominant interpretation for secession, the most prevalent, the one that seems to have the most adherence, is that slavery was the main difference between one part of the Union and the other. In fact, to the point that commonly people in their, talking about the sections talked about the slave states and the free states. This was the way people in their minds divided the country up. Slavery was the most controversial institution in the United States. When people talked about the problems that divided the sections or put them into conflict or potential conflict with one another, the thing they most talked about was slavery. There were several crises of the Union that students of history are familiar with, the crisis of 1820 over Missouri, the crisis of 1850 over the territories that we took from Mexico at the end of the Mexican War, the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. All of these had to do with slavery. They didn't have to do with anything else. They had to do with slavery. The Union almost came apart several times, and there's, there's really no debate about that. Uh, we came to the verge of secession several times uh, because of disagreements about the future of slavery in the United States. And whenever there were compromises to settle these crises and move past them, all the compromises had to do with slavery. When the southern states seceded, they said that they were seceding because they thought slavery was threatened. When there were proposals put forward in the great secession winter of 1860-61 about how we can avoid this crisis leading to permanent separation, all the proposals had to do with slavery. Now, if, if something else was bothering people and some other problem needed to be solved, you would expect to find proposals to solve it. Furthermore, of course, and we can't leave this out, it's very important, gradually through the 19th century, there arose a movement geographically located in the free states to abolish slavery to demand the immediate abolition of slavery because slavery was a moral wrong. You are owning stolen human beings and you are stealing their labor and controlling every activity in their lives. And the argument developed at first by a rather ragtag, marginal band of activists and radicals. But anyone who spends time reading in the public discussion going through the 19th century can sense that gradually the public in the North was becoming aware of the problem of slavery, consciousness was being raised, and coming to the conclusion that slavery was wrong and someday had to go. So when Southerners said they were seceding because the North was becoming anti-slavery, they were correct. Finally, the Republican Party was created to stop the spread of slavery. 
and it nominated and then elected as its first president, Abraham Lincoln, the first American politician to rise to the president who said in public that slavery is wrong and must come to an end. Hmm. So it, it would make sense if you were an owner of, of a kind of property that not only had half the nation or more than half the nation coming to view as uh, abhorrent, but had elected a president who had indicated he was going to do away with that property, it might make sense that you would consider secession in order to protect that property. So those are some of the reasons why the idea that slavery led to disunion is compelling to many people. Slavery is certainly a very compelling explanation for disunion, but it doesn't really tell the whole story. Stay tuned for the second half of our interview with Dr. Forge in our next episode. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.